Chapter Sixteen, Part One of the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carolina. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Volume Six by Edward Gibbon, Chapter Sixteen: Mughals, Ottoman Turks, Part One. From the petty quarrels of a city and her suburbs, from the cowardice and discord of the falling Greeks, I shall now ascend to the victorious Turks, whose domestic slavery was ennobled by martial discipline, religious enthusiasm. And the energy of the national character, the rise and progress of the Ottomans, the present sovereigns of Constantinople, are connected with the most important scenes of modern history, but they are founded on a previous knowledge of the great eruption of the Mughals and the Tartars, whose rapid conquests may be compared with the primitive convulsions of nature, which have agitated and altered the surface of the globe. I have long since asserted my claim to introduce to nations the immediate or remote authors of the fall of the Roman Empire, nor can I refuse myself to those events which, from their common magnitude, will interest a philosophic mind in the history of blood. From the spacious highlands between China, Siberia, and the Caspian Sea, the tide of emigration and war has repeatedly been poured. These ancient seats of the Huns and Turks were occupied in the twelfth century by many pastoral tribes of the same descent and similar manners, which were united and led to conquest by the formidable Zingis. In his ascent to greatness, that barbarian, whose private appellation was Temugin, had trampled on the necks of his equals. His birth was noble. But it was the pride of victory that the prince or people deduced his seventh ancestor from the immaculate conception of a virgin. His father had reigned over thirteen hordes, which composed about thirty or forty thousand families. Above two thirds refused to pay tithes or obedience to his infant son, and at the age of thirteen, Temugin fought a battle against his rebellious subjects. The future conqueror of Asia was reduced to fly and to obey, but he rose superior to his fortune, and in his fortieth year he had established his fame and dominion over the circumjacent tribes. In a state of society, in which policy is rude and valor is universal, the ascendant of one man must be founded on his power and resolution to punish his enemies and recompense his friends. His first military league was ratified by the simple rites of sacrificing a horse and tasting of a running stream. Temugin pledged himself to divide with his followers the sweets and the bitters of life, and when he had shared among them his horses and apparel, he was rich in their gratitude and his own hopes. After his first victory, he placed seventy cauldrons on the fire. And seventy of the most guilty rebels were cast headlong into the boiling water.
the sphere of his attraction was continually enlarged by the ruin of the proud and the submission of the prudent and the boldest chieftains might tremble when they beheld encased in silver the skull of the khan of Carites, who under the name of prester john had corresponded with the roman pontiff and the princes of europe the ambition of Temugin condescended to employ the arts of superstition, and it was from a naked prophet, who could ascend to heaven on a white horse, that he accepted the title of Zingis, the most great, and the divine right to the conquest and dominion of the earth. In a general curultai, or diet, he was seated on a felt, which was long afterwards revered as a relic, and solemnly proclaimed great Khan, or emperor of the moguls and tartars of these kindred though rival names the former had given birth to the imperial race and the latter has been extended by accident or error over the spacious wilderness of the north the code of laws which singus dictated to his subjects was adapted to the preservation of a domestic peace and the exercise of foreign hostility the punishment of death was inflicted on the crimes of adultery, murder, perjury, and the capital thefts of a horse or ox. And the fiercest of men were mild and just in their intercourse with each other. The future election of the great Khan was vested in the princes of his family and the heads of the tribes, and the regulations of the chase were essential to the pleasures and plenty of a Tartar camp. The victorious nation was held sacred from all servile labours, which were abandoned to slaves and strangers, and every labour was servile except the profession of arms. The service and discipline of the troops, who were armed with bows, scimitars, and iron maces, and divided by hundreds, thousands, and ten thousands, were the institutions of a veteran commander. Each officer and soldier was made responsible, under pain of death, for the safety and honour of his companions, and the spirit of conquest breathed in the law, that peace should never be granted, unless to a vanquished and suppliant arm enemy. But it is in the religion of Zingis that best deserves our wonder and applause. The Catholic inquisitors of Europe, who defended nonsense by cruelty, might have been confounded by the example of a barbarian, who anticipated the lessons of philosophy, and established by his laws a system of pure theism and perfect toleration. His first and only article of faith was the existence of one God, the author of all good, who fills by his presence the heavens and earth, which he has created by his power. The Tartars and Moguls were addicted to the idols of their peculiar tribes, and many of them had been converted by the foreign missionaries to the religions of Moses, of Mohammed, and of Christ. These various systems in freedom and concord were taught and practised within the precincts of the same camp, and the bonds, the imam, the rabbi, the Nestorian, and the Latin priest enjoyed the same honourable exemption from service and tribute. In the mosque of Bohara, the insolent victor might trample the Koran under his horse's feet, but the calm legislator respected the prophets and pontiffs of the most hostile sects. 
The reason of Zingis was not informed by books. The Khan could neither read nor write, and, except the tribe of the Igors, the greatest part of the Mughals and Tartars were as illiterate as their sovereign. The memory of their exploits was preserved by tradition. Sixty-eight years after the death of Zingis, these traditions were collected and transcribed. The brevity of their domestic annals may be supplied by the Chinese, Persians, Armenians, Syrians, Arabians, Greeks, Russians, Poles, Hungarians, and Latins, and each nation will deserve credit in the relation of their own disasters and defeats. End of chapter 16, part 1. Recording by Carolina.